The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And if you'd find that passage rather quickly, I'm going to read this text, and then I want to speak to you on the subject, the Apostles' Anxiety. The Apostles' Anxiety. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse number 1. Wherefore, when we could no longer forbear... We thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. You'll notice these next couple of verses, people don't even know they're in the Bible, I don't think, or don't believe they should be. That no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we were appointed thereunto. For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain." I remind you that these individual books of the Bible that were written by Paul are called epistles. Epistle is from the Greek word epistole. It means a letter, uh, a message that's written to a person or in this case to a church. And sometimes in the English New Testament we see that word translated as letter, but most often it's transliterated directly from the Greek into the word in English, epistle. And I include this little bit of information for you uh, because I've been asked many times, what is the difference between an epistle and an apostle? And that's not really a dumb question because an apostle is one who bears a message and an epistle is the message that he bears. Paul wrote 13 of these epistles in the New Testament. Some say he wrote 14. That would include Hebrews, although the author of Hebrews isn't named. And we notice that in Paul's other letters, he always tells us that he is the author. And so there's a lot of speculation about the unnamed author of the book of Hebrews. But we have no question about this little letter that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica Because he begins with the usual salutation, verse number 1, or chapter 1, where he names himself. But we've also seen, as we've studied, that this letter is a very deeply personal letter. His method usually, the apostle's method usually, is to present doctrine and then to give a practical application of that doctrine. And the primary doctrine that we find in 1 Thessalonians is that of sanctification, The doctrine that we are to be separated to God. That we are to be a holy people. And most emphatically, it is the sanctification regarding how we are to live as we we wait for the return of Christ to this earth. 
We see this in verse number 13 in this third chapter. To the end he may establish your hearts unmovable in holiness, that your sanctification in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul's letters give us a variety of doctrines. You study him and you'll find he speaks of justification and sanctification. He speaks of God's election. He speaks of adoption and glorification among many other great doctrines of the faith. And then added to the doctrinal considerations, usually you'll find another part. And this is where Paul gets very personal and he expresses his feelings for the church. Paul started many churches. But he often didn't spend a great deal of time with each of those churches. He would evangelize in a town and he would begin just the nucleus of a church and then he would need to move on and he would go into another city and start another church. And without rapid communications that we have in our time, Paul was often left wondering, how had these new converts done? How were they doing in their faith? Were they progressing? Were they still holding on? Were they building in their faith? And in the last message, we discussed Paul's great love for the Thessalonians. It was a love that many non-Christians or most don't understand. He spent only a very brief time with them, and yet he was very strongly attached to these people. And this is a mystery to all but Christians how such deep bonds are formed between us in such minute periods of time. I've titled the message today, The Apostles' Anxiety. And I want you to understand what I mean by anxiety because that's not always a good word. It's not always a good word according to the scriptures because anxiety sounds like worry. So are we talking about the apostles' worry? Well, not exactly in that sense. This is not a worry or an anxiety that's been produced because Paul is afraid that God isn't in control or that God doesn't know what's going to happen or that God hasn't even designed everything that will happen. Paul was very much aware God is always in control. But here it's a very deeply personal thing that's going on. And it's the concern, the love that he has for them and how this church had handled suffering. How was it dealing with persecutions that were sure to come? When he left the city, he left because of persecution. He was, he was run out of town by an angry mob. And he knew this is what always happened in every place where he preached. There was much contention over the gospel. And those who believed and were faithful to it would always receive persecution. Now, he knew there was suffering. We've just read in the text that God has designed this for it. But that doesn't mean there isn't a great deal of personal pain when you know that people that you love are going through hardships, when times are tough for them. Now, in preaching this text, the expositor always has a problem of redundancy. There is a great deal of repetition in this text. Going back into chapter 2, flowing on through chapter 3, it's mostly the same theme as Paul speaks of uh, his love for the people, how he just bears his soul for, for their welfare. And so he just keeps telling them over and over in different ways how much he cares for them. This section is about this anxiety. He's bursting with desire to know how this church does. How have they fared since he left? What's going on in the midst of that persecution? And in the middle of those things, thinking about those things, we know that in the beginning of chapter 2, he had to refute 
claims by his, by his enemies that he didn't care. That he cared nothing at all for the Thessalonian church. His soul, though, is very deeply vexed for them as he writes this. And it drives the anxiety that we find in chapter 3. Now, interestingly, the way that Paul followed up charges that were made against him was to tell them that his spiritual adversaries and their spiritual adversaries are the ones who caused the problems. They're the ones that, that trouble you. They're the ones that will destroy your souls. Not me. I'm the apostle who cares for you. Now, if you go back to chapter 2 and verse 15, he says, those who killed Jesus act contrary to all men. They are against people. People who are against Jesus are against the welfare of all men. And he says in verse number 16 that they forbid the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's the only way that people will be saved. Then he goes on to describe how his feelings were different. That he wanted them to hear and believe about Jesus. He wanted them to be in heaven. And he said, you will be my crown of joy and rejoicing in the presence of Christ at his coming. So we don't find that Paul speaks of material gain. He's not after their money. He won't take advantage of them. There are no earthly treasures involved in what he does at Thessalonica. And so that makes him so much different from liars and cheats and people that you know in the religious world today that are always trying to take advantage of somebody, trying to get somebody's money, uh, trying to get sensual favors out of them to satisfy their desires. But then as Paul goes on in this chapter, he, he piles on more personal feelings. And he just bursts out with this anxiousness to see them. He described himself earlier as a mother who has been bereaved of her children and he hasn't heard from them. He speaks of himself as a father who doesn't know how his sons fare in the world. He doesn't know very much about what's happened to them. And this is what he must know. Now, I'd like for us to pick up our thoughts again, speaking of Paul's love for the church. We discussed it last week, and I want to show you some more of his thoughts and feelings for these people. And his feelings are good for us because this is to teach us, and it's more, I think, directed towards what a pastor should know. How a pastor should have a loving, uh, caring, compassionate concern for the people that he ministers to. And Paul will demonstrate this for us. First today, I'd like us to look at the Apostle's fondness, his fondness for these people. We expect that there are no lasting bonds of affection that can be forged when you know people for very little time. I explained that last time, and we see it again in these verses, that deep friendships are hardly made in just a few weeks. We don't often uh, make in a short time the kinds of friendships that would cause us to spend sleepless nights agonizing over how someone is doing. Uh, we didn't actually read this far today, but you'll see if you glance down in verse number 10, that he said, at night and day, night and day, he prayed for these people that he had hoped to see them. And these verses reflect that pastoral care. These are the people that he had won to the Lord. They were his converts. And leaving these new converts in Thessalonica was like a mother leaving her child. Like leaving that child behind, a child that you've labored to give birth to. And this is what Paul did. He labored in the gospel to bring them to the understanding of Jesus Christ. And what he doesn't want to do is to just abandon them without any personal protection. So here is a very high anxiety level. He must know how his children in the faith are doing. 
and his evangelistic method for these people, his care for them, is not much like we see in soul-winning techniques in churches today. Many people believe that evangelism is just going out, speaking to someone, tell them about Jesus, and then get that person to repeat a prayer. Get them to say, all right, this is what I believe. I've received Christ as my Savior. And that they're done there. Then the sinner is locked up. The profession is good. The work is done. And then that person quickly moves on to the next and begins to deal with that person without really very much thought about their welfare. Not how they're going to progress. Not how they're going to be sanctified. Not much thought about establishing a relationship with that person who's just supposedly come to Christ. And first I'll say about that, that salvation is not determined and salvation is not verified simply by a prayer. It has to be accompanied with a conforming life. There must be evidence of that profession. There must be a time of proving to see if the life that comes out of that profession matches the lifestyle that Jesus would have his people live. And to determine the validity of the profession takes time. It takes some observation. It takes looking into this thing to see, has the gospel of Christ really taken root in that person's heart? And I want you to think about that because it's going to show up here in verse number 2. Discipleship, proof of profession will show up because what Paul sent Timothy to do was to go back to Thessalonica to establish them in the faith. So this is not a baby that Paul's going to abandon on the doorstep. No, he wants to nurture them, bring them to a deeper faith in Christ. And not being able to go himself, because there's so many other churches that he had to care for, he cared for them through proxy, with a proxy, through his faithful friend, Timothy. But Paul wants to know about them. He's the one who sends Timothy. So I want you to see that Paul had a heart to develop these Christians. He was anxious over his little ones. He, he loved them. And this fondness that he has for them is real. It pained his soul to be without them. And so he writes in this first verse, When I could or when we could no longer forbear. And that means when I just couldn't stand it any longer. When I couldn't stand not knowing. I've got to have some news to be at peace. Now we notice his use of language here, that he says, we, when we could no longer forbear. Those of you that may be used to reading the Apostle Paul will notice that many times he uses this this plural we in his writing, when what he really means is me, or he's talking about I. I want to know. I'm concerned about this. And he uses this word we as a form of humility. That this is not about him, this is all about them. And what he didn't want is undue attention paid for to him that he would he would be some gain some kind of praise because he's this attentive to these people. So rather than just say me, he says we. We were wondering about this. And he says, in effect, I can't stand it any longer. You're important, I'm not important, and they're important because churches like this one, were the future of the faith of Jesus Christ. And so he said, it's better for me that I would be left at Athens alone than for you to be without help. And thus he was willing to send his faithful, trusted companion and helper, Timothy, to go and be with them and to establish their faith. Let me talk to you about that for just a moment. We see the apostles' fondness for them. And then next is the apostles' favor. 
said it's better to be left alone than to go without knowing how you are. In verse 1, wherefore, when we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone and sent Timotheus, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and to comfort you concerning your faith. So Paul thought it best for his peace of mind and their welfare to send Timothy. Timothy would check on them. He would minister to them for their spiritual well-being. Now, the reason that this is so important for us and why, why it's so significant is the value that Timothy was to Paul's ministry. This is not an insignificant thing that Paul would say, I was willing to be left at Athens alone. I'm willing to send my most trusted helper to be with you. I'm willing to be alone. Now, let's understand for just a minute who Timothy is uh, at this juncture of his life. He's just relatively a new Christian. That doesn't mean that he was new to the faith, not faith in God, because it appears when Paul met him at the beginning of the second missionary journey that uh, that's in Acts 16 and also by what we read in 2 Timothy, that Timothy knew the Lord. Timothy was a young man who was proficient in the scriptures. He'd grown up learning the word of God. But the part that Timothy didn't know was that he didn't know about Jesus Christ. He hadn't yet heard that a Messiah had come. He had the scriptures. He read those. His grandmother and his mother brought him up in the scriptures and taught the scriptures. But none of them knew that Jesus Christ had come. That this Messiah that they read about in the Old Testament, they didn't know that God had actually sent him. And they didn't know that Christ had come and Christ had died. And most importantly, that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. That's not information they yet know. And yet that is the very thing that the Apostle Paul said makes you a Christian. A Christian is one who knows about and believes in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Timothy hadn't yet heard that. He hadn't been exposed to that gospel. He hadn't been exposed to the church of Christ, nor, of course, to the deep theological teachings of Paul. So Timothy's faith at, at that point was an imperfect faith. Not until he was reached by Paul in the second missionary journey did he learn about Christ. This is just shortly before Acts 17 and when Paul and Silas and Timothy went to Thessalonica. But the great thing about Timothy, he was a diligent student of the word. So he took all of this learning, this understanding that he had before learning about Christ, all the Old Testament knowledge that he had, and he was a very quick study, and he began to grow in the Lord. And he began to desire to learn more about Christ. Oh, he took Paul seriously. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 2.15 that, that a, a child of God should be diligent to study the Word of God, to be a workman that needs not to be ashamed, to rightly divide the Word of truth. And that's what Timothy wanted to do. He wanted to be a Christian who could do that, one who could prove himself worthy of the calling that God gave him as a servant of Christ. And through that diligence, Timothy was a fast learner. He proved himself to be a man of character, and became a marvelous asset to Paul's ministry. He was a man that was needed in tough places, where the gospel is difficult to preach. Paul needed his help. And this was especially true at this 
particular part of this missionary journey, considering where Paul was. This letter was written from Corinth, but that's not where Paul was when Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica. They were in Athens. They were in that Greek city of Athens, and that's where Timothy was told to go back to Thessalonica. It was from Athens. Well, let, let's, let's understand that Athens was a very, very formidable challenge to the gospel. Athens is the home of philosophy. And at this stage of its history, a very much vain philosophy. This is the home of the Stoics and the Epicureans. Some of the greatest philosophers gathered in that city. And when Paul was there, they met with him and they disputed with him. They argued this religion that Paul was teaching. And so when Paul arrived in Athens, he was just taken aback by the pervasive idolatry of the city. Every street that he traveled down, there were temples and there were idols to heathen gods. They were everywhere. And interestingly, when Paul visited there, Athens was on the decline. This is not the heyday of Alexander the Great when Athens was that, that uh, uh, great city of the Greek Empire. But it was in its decline and was no longer in its prime. And the mythological, uh, mythological uh, religion that they practiced was decreasing and in its place there was put more of this philosophy steeped in the philosophy that's steeped in worldly wisdom and the men who taught there became the darlings of the intellectual elites these were philosophers that if you and I sat down with them most of us would not be able to understand what they were talking about they were dealing with issues that you and I don't think about uh, still today, those philosophies are considered to be some of the greatest that men have thought about. And yet here's the Apostle Paul standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with these most learned intellectuals of the time. He's teaching a poor man's religion, one that's attended to mostly by slaves and illiterate inferiors. And here is Paul, stepped into that place, never pushed down as an ignoramus. But instead he intrigued them. The defense of the gospel made them amazed. The preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ caused them to want to hear more. They didn't know, what is this thing about the resurrection of the dead? So how much could Paul use, how much could he use a man like Timothy when he's surrounded by this bevy of philosophical vultures? And so not thinking of his own welfare, Paul showed his favor for the church by sending his most trusted confidant to help them. And we notice the words that he used to describe Timothy. These words assure them, Timothy is the very best that I have to offer you. Here's the best person for your welfare. He is a brother, he said. He is a minister of God and he is a fellow laborer. And you'll notice those descriptions don't sound of it as if Paul considered Timothy an inferior. He said he is a brother. Brother. That's the New Testament technical term for a believer. We call each, other's, each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we do that, we Christianize those words. It's not just a family word. This is the way that we identify each other. This is, this is how we say we're of like mind. We believe the same things. And we use these terms brother and sister to identify one another. So Paul says Timothy is a brother. Not my little pea-brain brother who doesn't yet know what he's doing, but a brother who is my equal in the Lord. 
And how do we know that? Because he said also he is a minister of God. Isn't that, isn't that important? A minister of God? Paul acknowledged Timothy's calling. He wasn't a useless servant that Paul could do without anyway. No, he is a minister of God. And there isn't a higher calling than to be a minister of God. So Paul showed his favor by sending a brother and a minister of God. And then lest he seemed to be sending someone of little value, he said he is a fellow laborer. This indicates that Timothy had progressed enough and that he was good enough to be sent out on his own. He doesn't need someone to direct him. He can go out and represent the apostle well. He can go out on his own and be a servant and acquit himself well in his own ministry. And that's impressive. It's as if Paul says, Timothy is just that good. Timothy is capable. He can represent me. He'll give you the same support and encouragement as I would give. It's like a restatement of chapter 2, verse 8. He said, we were willing to give our own souls. And that's what Timothy was to Paul. It was like giving a piece of his own soul to help the Thessalonians. Then notice again this term, fellow laborer. This comes from the Greek word, sunergo. It's from two words, soon, that means together, and ergo, that means work. And it's an indication that the care of the church and preaching the gospel is teamwork. That we must strive together for the gospel. This is not a one-man job. Many people think that's the pastor's job to do that. The work of the church is not a one-man job. The work of the church is team effort. All of us are ministers of Christ. I only happen to be the lead minister, pastor, teacher. Each of you are also ministers of God. And I'm not above anyone here except in this, that God has chosen me to administer the direction for this team to work. But folks, all of us are on God's team. And I wish it was true that we all work together. But unfortunately, we know the statistics Workers in the church, we know those statistics. 20% of people do 80% of the work. The rest are spectators and pew sitters. Some don't even want to be asked to do anything. They say, you got something to do? Leave me out. Go to somebody else. How much more effective would the church be if 100% of the people did 100% of the work? Let me comment that Timothy was... A valuable brother who latched on to the truth. He worked diligently. He was faithful. And he was an example of how every one of us should approach our sanctification. That he was good enough and he was strong enough to do the special work that Paul sent him to do. But, once again, folks, most are not like this. Let me show you the problem with most church members. Turn to... I'll say, maybe not most, maybe not in Berean Baptist Church, but in many churches. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5, and here is an appropriate description of the modern church. While you're looking for that, let me ask a question. Which of you could I walk down the aisle, and I would tap you on the shoulder, and I would say, here is a strong brother, here is a faithful brother, I've got to leave you, but I've decided that I'm going to leave this man in charge, And he'll be able to establish you and he will comfort you in your faith. Which of you would be nervous if you knew it was my intent? That if I started to walk down that aisle, that's what I would do. 
I'm going to touch you on the shoulder and I'm going to say, I'm putting you in charge of this church. And you need to be uh, ready to do that. You need to be up and ready to go when I call on you. But how many of you, as you see me pass by, you know it's my intent, then you start to... Pretty soon I have to look under the chair to find you. Too often it's slumpers and sleepers in the church. And that's part of the problem. Look here in Hebrews 5. It explains why this is true. In verse number 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now you see what he's saying? He's saying to these Hebrews, some of you have been around long enough that you should be teachers. That you're at the place, you've been here long enough that you should be able to step up And you should be able to encourage others. You should teach others. You should be able to help others in the faith. You should be ready and available. But he says, you're not. You panic. You faint. You'll not say, here am I, send me. Paul wrote in Galatians 6, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And I'm afraid many of the people of God have fainted. Some of you haven't learned. Some of you must be taught again and again and again the first principles of the faith. Honestly, I hope that you are growing in the faith. That's my desire for you. I believe that we give enough in-depth teaching of the Word of God that you can grow. Uh, Sometimes I think we're passing out buckets of miracle grow. You should be growing in the faith. So what's wrong? Uh, Everything that you hear, you should put in practice. With the faith, practice makes perfect. Perfect, just like in everything else you do. Now, I'm telling you, this also is a common problem in our churches. In many fundamental churches, it's endemic. And it's not always the problem that the people just ignore the deeper doctrines of the faith. That's not always the problem. It's not that they ignore it when they hear it. The problem is they haven't heard it. Nobody's ever taught them. And so instead of of teaching more advanced doctrine, it's as one local pastor said, that's just too complex. And he called the doctrines of grace confounded complexities. Well, the result of that is a constant diet of milk. And when you feed people milk every service, you needn't expect them to be doctrinally strong. Hebrews says that God's people need to grow up. They need to go on from the milk. They need to develop a taste for strong meat. Now we take this problem of Hebrews 5 and we see, did Paul think Timothy had that problem? See what he expected from Timothy. This man who's diligent to study the Word, what does he expect when he sees a man who studies the Word or a woman, let's say, who studies the Word? What does he expect? Well, in verse number 2, he said, I'm going to send him to establish you and comfort you concerning your faith. We ready for another word study? What did Paul mean? He said, establish. That word means to make steady. It means to buttress. It means to fortify. It means to underpin. It means to make sure the foundation. It's a word that's used 14 times in the New Testament, almost always in this context, to build spiritual strength. 
So how would he buttress them? I think you know. This church should know. We're strengthened only as we learn the Word of God. Only as we learn more of the Word. But remember, here are people who have no New Testament to read. They're, they have none. And so what Timothy has is Paul's word. He has the word of the apostle, one of the authors of the New Testament. Eventually, this letter would come down to be the inspired word of God to God's people. So here is an apostle with an epistle. He has the word of God for these people. And so without a New Testament to read, they needed to hear the word of the apostle. The word that's been sent by mouth through Timothy. And so as they turn to the apostle to gain their strength, we do the same today. We turn right to the words of God that are penned by Paul and the other authors of the New Testament. And that's where we grow. That's where we get our strength. We must stay in the inspired holy word of God. And that's the failing of many fundamental churches and others. There just isn't enough spiritual food from the word that makes the church healthy. So God's people need strong meat. God's people need doctrine. You need to be challenged with Bible exposition. You need to be challenged with discussion classes about the Word. But unfortunately, we can't get people to come to discussion classes about the Word. We've got other things to do. Oh, but folks, you know, churches have their light shows and their fog machines. We'd rather that you weren't in a fog about what the Word of God means. And so we concentrate on giving you the Word. And we'll leave entertainment to others. Who among you can be chosen? If the pastor says, we need help. We we need help. We've got a brother and sister that's weak in the faith. We've got someone who needs help. Can I send you? Who can we send to help them? Only those that have grown in the word. Only those that have taken time to get into God's word. As Hebrews says, those who have already had their senses exercised. To discern good and evil. Then another word he uses in the text is the word comfort. Perhaps you wouldn't recognize that this is the same word that's used of the Holy Spirit who is the comforter. The word here is parakletos. And in this sense it means the encourager. And it was to show them again. To remind them again of what they believed. Timothy's going to come and remind you of what you believe. But that same hope that first day that you believed in Jesus Christ, that same hope is the hope that you live in. It is the same hope that you need right now. It's the same hope that you need to grow in, to be pleasing, and to be sanctified in your faith in Jesus Christ. What's the encouragement he gives? Well, we go back to chapter 2, verse 12, where he said, Walk worthy of your calling. Don't give up. Keep looking ahead. Keep looking and waiting for Christ to return. Walk worthy of Christ and his kingdom. So that's what Timothy sent to do. Paul felt him capable of accomplishing that task. And this just simply speaks volumes of Paul's confidence and his value that he placed on Timothy. Paul could have left him in Athens. But he was fond of the Thessalonians. He favored them enough that he would give up Timothy to help them. And I'll remind you again, what do you do when you face trials? Where do you go when you face uncertain times? What's going to help you when you wonder, what is God doing with my life? And when you wonder, what about this suffering? What about this illness? What about this pain that I'm going through? Where am I going to get through that? How will I get through it? Where will I receive strength? The Bible only gives you one place and only one place I can tell you to go. And that's to go to the Word of God. 
Through his word, we get our strength. Knowledge of the word is the answer to successful Christian living as we wait for Christ to return. Now, thirdly, I want to show you very quickly the apostles' fear. Not fear as in lack of courage. No, we know that Paul never lacked courage. Verse 2, chapter 2 says he was bold to speak the gospel of God. He said he preached with much contention. He knew when he preached there was harm that would come to him. So this is not fear about that. This is fear about their faith. Had persecution dampened their faith? Was their faith failing? Verse 5, for this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and your labor, our labor, be in vain. Now let's understand faith. We've been over this on many occasions. Sometimes faith in the scriptures refers to the whole body of Christian truth, the whole body of Christian doctrine. If we speak of the Christian faith, we, we think of that system of belief in Jesus Christ, the whole body of doctrine, all the doctrines that we believe, used in much the same way as we would say the Buddhist faith or the faith of Islam. It's the system of belief that's believed by those people. But this is not faith in that sense. Paul's not talking about faith in that sense. Here he speaks of personal faith. One thing that you can't do is you can't destroy the faith. You can't destroy Christianity. It's foolproof. It's, it's harm-proof. You, you, can't, you can't destroy Christianity. Satan has tried relentlessly for 2,000 years every perversion of it known to man. And yet he's not been able to destroy it because Jesus gave a promise that he couldn't. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So that's not going to happen. But did you also know that your personal faith cannot be destroyed? No, you can't, you can't lose your faith. You can never be without your faith. Though it may be small and times it may be weak, you can't lose it. But what can happen to your faith is it can be marginalized. Your faith can be nullified. Your faith can be neutralized. And often the way that Satan does it is with troubles, trials, afflictions, sufferings that come on you, hardships that you go through, constant pressures that you're under. And there are people that once were effective witnesses for Christ or could be, but they have been set aside because of suffering, because of some ridicule or whatever it is that they perceive as their persecution. And so our faith always needs to be strengthened. Satan is always there fighting against us. He will not leave us alone. So we've got to have something to fortify us. We need protection around us. We must be stabilized to speak, keep speaking the truth. And so Paul told the church, you should not be moved by affliction. He says, don't be shaken by it. Don't be shaken off your foundation of truth. Now, in the immediate context, the affliction he speaks of are the persecutions of the Jews in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Those persecutors were Jews and their countrymen, uh, the Gentiles that were stirred up by the Jews. But you notice a couple of points made here by the apostle. First, he said, you were appointed to suffer. You were appointed to this. He made it clear that suffering is designed by God. He said, you have been called on to suffer for Christ's sake. If you want references, just write these down. You can read them later. Philippians 1, verse 29. Romans 8, 17. 2 Timothy 2, 12. 1 Peter 4, 13. Write those down. Keep those with you. When you run into somebody who says, Oh no, Christians aren't supposed to suffer. 
the, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel says, no, God intends that all Christians should be happy and skipping along in life. Everything should just be fine. There should be no suffering. Then you need to read the Bible. You need to read what the Word of God says. Yes, suffering comes to Christians. If you don't have trouble, you're not a Christian. Jesus said, I suffered. And if I suffered, so will you. A disciple is not above his master. So if being a Christian is easy for you, then you don't have the Bible's kind of Christianity. And then I might add that suffering is not accidental. You don't just fall into this thing. Now we might not understand all that God does through suffering, but we can't deny that it's true. He tells us it's true that we have been designed for this and that our faith must be strong enough to go through it. And what God does is to develop our faith through it. I might not be able to explain all suffering, and I'll tell you, I can't. But I can give you some insight into its value. Romans 5 says that trials are necessary for strength. Like hands that are sore until they're calloused, like muscles that are weak until they're exercised, the pain ends in strength. Romans 5, verse 3, And not only so... But we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, that is endurance, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Ultimately, the end of trials is hope. What is that hope? To be delivered from the wrath to come. What is this hope? It's to be found pleasing to Christ at his return. What is his hope? To be judged worthy of Christ's kingdom and still to be standing at the end when he shows up. Now you see this? The apostle says tribulation builds character. The experience of it strengthens for the next trial, the next and the next. Now if you go back to chapter 2 verse 3, Paul said there's no deceit in my preaching he didn't try to cover this up. He wasn't trying to cover up pain and sorrow and the difficult path of following Christ. He says this right up front. He'd already taught this when he first met the Thessalonians. I've already told you this, he said. He told them coming to Christ is not a cakewalk. He said, you shall have tribulation. And all he needed to do was to quote Jesus about suffering, which is something those preachers, those prosperity preachers never do. This is not a secret in Christianity. This is not hidden. We're not going to lie to you. It's like when Ananias and Sapphira were struck down by the Holy Spirit because they lied. The disciples didn't say, well, we better hide their bodies so that nobody will know about it. We don't want Christians to be discouraged because God killed two of us. And he didn't say, we need to hide those bodies because if the lost see that, they won't believe. No, the Word says that they were... That great fear came on them and many people came to the Lord because of it. The deceivers don't want you to know about that. The false teacher won't tell you that Christianity is a suffering religion. You know why? Because they can't get your money that way. They want you to be happy. They want you to be giving. They want you, they want you to keep showered out that money. And so they lie and they say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Ask Stephen about that. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Ask John. They doused him in a pot of boiling oil. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Ask Peter, who was crucified upside down. Ask Joel Osteen. What if one day Joel Osteen decided he was going to tell the truth? 
You know, I know that's a stretch of imagination, but play along with me for just a little bit. What if he did? Well, you know he'd write another book. He, of course, he would write your worst life now, because that would be true. And isn't that right? Paul said, I already told you you would suffer. And Peter said, don't think when fiery trials come that some strange thing happened to you. This is expected. The apostle said expected. Osteen writes stuff like, you know, God favors you. God, God wants you to get the best parking spot at the mall. He said that about himself. God favors him. He gives him the best parking spot at the mall. And the little old ladies in the wheelchairs, they can find their own spot further away from the door. I mean, folks, this is selfish sewer doctrine. This is not about us. No, you will suffer. Until you say, well, if we're going to suffer, and the Word of God says you're going to suffer, and all these Christians in the Bible suffered, and there are martyrs down through the ages that were killed in all sorts of ways, and they suffered, why do people still believe the gospel of Christ? Why do they still believe it? Why are there still Christians? Because the Holy Spirit gives a greater hope. You will suffer for a little while. And then Satan will be bruised under your feet. Folks, that's better than getting a good spot at the mall now. It's better than getting that spot than getting one close to the center of hell later. Now Paul's fear though is, maybe they didn't hear me right. Maybe they didn't hear what I said. They are discouraged by their suffering. And so are they no longer serving? And he couldn't stand not knowing. So he sent Timothy. You know something? You know what God could have done? God could have revealed to, Timothy, or to Paul everything that he needed to know without sending Timothy. There could have been another man from Macedonia who just in the middle of the night appeared to Paul and said, Paul, don't worry about things. Things are great over there. Don't worry about us. We're doing fine. How would that help the Thessalonians? How would they be strengthened? How would they be encouraged? God doesn't work that way. God wants Timothy in Thessalonica. He wants him there to encourage his people. So Paul gets to endure anxiety. And that builds his faith when finally he hears the good report of these people. Now again, the anxiety is that something has happened to their faith. Verse 5 says he wanted to know, did the tempter tempt them too much? Did they fail? Perhaps faith hasn't taken root. You remember the parable of the sower when Jesus said, sometimes that seed of the gospel falls on rocky soil and it never takes root. And when the sun comes up, it's scorched. And so here, is it the same as this? They on the rock, Jesus said, are they which when they hear, receive the word with joy and these have no root, which for a while believe and in time temptation fall away. Listen to me, in time of temptation, those who aren't grounded will fall away. In time of suffering, those who aren't grounded will fall away. So you've got to be careful of the ones that you say are converts. You've got to watch them for a while. Don't assume because they prayed a prayer that the gospel took root. Let temptations come. Let trials come. And see, do they wither away or do they grow? That's what Paul wants to know. True believers don't wither away. So he wants to know in verse 5. And this is, uh, I'm trying to finish quickly. He says, maybe I labored in vain. Well, I want you to understand, there is no work that you do for the Lord that is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So Paul doesn't mean that. 
He's already written, or he did write about that, so that's not what he means. He means, are there true converts in Thessalonica? He wants to know, are they still holding on, or is there no church in Thessalonica? He can't get this region out of his mind if there's no church there. And so what's happened there? If a church hasn't been established, then he's got to go back. Now, you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't do any good to hide the truth about pain and suffering. When it inevitably comes, either the believers will persevere or the unbelievers will fall away. So you might as well tell the truth at the beginning. If you sweeten the message to get a convert, he's going to fall away anyway. So what's the point? You haven't helped anything. So this is what we have to do with the gospel. We've got to be honest up front. We've got to tell people, this is what you're headed for. This is what Christianity is about. And then we trust the Holy Spirit to do the work of perseverance in the believer. It's God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we give people the true gospel of Christ. Then the labor is never in vain, no matter what their response is. God has something good in it if you just obey to do it. Now understand... Paul's labor might have been in vain in the church if they're too weak to be influential. Satan hindered too much. Their faith has been beaten down. And without sending Timothy to establish the church in Thessalonica, it would have no effect for the cause of Christ. How important is Thessalonica? Well, here is a city on the Ignatian Road, a great highway in the Roman Empire stretching east and west where travelers got on and could reach any place of the empire in a short period of time along that road. The gospel needs to be on that road. And this is what Paul is concerned about. Is the gospel on that road? Will it go out? Will it be preached? Will people be sent? Will people hear and believe? And then we ask, where did it all start? Why, why is there concern here? How does it all start? It starts with one man who had compassion for people that he barely knew. He had compassion over these converts, people that he barely knew, but they were family. They were the family of God, and he loved them. They were brothers and sisters, believers in the same Lord God. That's the selfless attitude that it takes. That's how the gospel works. That's how it reach, reaches out. When people say, it's not me, it's Jesus Christ, and you need to hear about him. No matter what it takes that I have to go through, you need to hear about Jesus. You've got to have enough compassion to occupy until Jesus comes. Jonathan Edwards said, the way to heaven is ascending. We must be content to travel uphill, though it be hard and tiresome and contrary to the natural bias of our flesh. Walking worthy is difficult, but God's by your side. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that we've heard today. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged in the faith. Lord, though we may have some who aren't doing what they should do, some that still need to be taught over and over again, some that haven't yet taken up their their responsibilities and duties to follow you as they should. Lord, this is our sanctification to walk worthy until Jesus comes again. Lay that on our hearts. May it be a message that we take deep within us, Lord. And may we give this gospel to others who need to hear the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.